This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We pray that you would speak to us once again by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. No telling of the Christmas story is complete without the Magi. The image we have of the Magi is one of magnificent mystery from the Far East. We imagine perhaps fine flowing robes of three kings from afar riding their camels bearing wonderful gifts. But just how accurate a picture is that? What does the gospel actually tell us? Well, in some ways, not as much as tradition may lead us to believe, but in other ways, so much more. Matthew records, verse 1, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. That's it. Uh, No mention of camels, no mention of kings, and no mention even of how many wise men there were. Now, in fairness, it's clear uh, where we get the idea of kings and camels and all the rest of it. We read about them in our Old Testament prophecy from the book of Isaiah, and we got hints of it in the psalm as well this morning. But who were these wise men? And what might we learn from them? And this morning, I want us to consider four aspects of this narrative. First, the wise men. Second, the star. Third, the scriptures. And fourth, the gifts. So first, the wise men, who were they? Uh, The Greek word used here and translated as wise men is magi, from where we get the word magic. And there were various kinds of magi in those days. But two types in particular were prominent. There were the magi who were of the the fraudulent magician type magi. And we encounter a couple of those in the scriptures. In the book of Acts, Simon Magus and Elymas, both into magic in a bad way. The other principal group of magi were a kind of scientist-philosopher-priest combo part astronomer, part astrologer, part priest from a tribe of priests in Persia. These magi were devout, inquisitive seekers who strive to understand the deep questions of life. Indeed, the Greek philosophers have been portrayed as their students. Aristotle spoke of the philosophical work of the magi. So I think it's fair to say that the magi who came looking for Jesus were of this latter type. Matthew tells us that after Jesus had been born, they came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who has been born the king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising. Now, though they were literally um, astronomers, astrologers, whatever exactly they were, not all of those who had these skills and crafts, would have associated what was going on in the observable constellation uh, and conjunction of the planets at that time as necessarily pointing to any deeper meaning, much less to a new king of the Jews being born. So there has to be more, and there is. 
we know from the historians of the day, Tacitus and Suetonius, that speculation was rife at that time that the ruler of the world would emerge from Judah. Indeed, Josephus applied that expectation to the Roman emperor Vespasian. Clearly, he was wrong about that. But what is it that prompted these magi to embark on their journey? These men were not merely astronomers, they were wise. They were seekers of truth, and they were willing, clearly, to take some risks. Which brings us to the star. There's been a lot of debate over what star or stars the wise men may have observed, ranging from Halley's Comet, not very likely, it's too early, that was in 11 BC, uh, to some sort of supernova. Now, of course, we don't know the exact date of Jesus' birth. We know that the calendar that we use got messed up somewhere along the line, and Jesus probably, or almost certainly, wasn't born in the year zero. He was probably born before that. Herod's death was in about 4 BC. But we do know that the planets Jupiter and Saturn were in conjunction with each other three times in 7 BC. Jupiter was known as the royal or kingly planet, and Saturn was sometimes thought to represent the Jews. So some conclude that's why the wise men knew a king of the Jews would be born. But whether or not that's the case, they needed more than the creation and the night sky to find Jesus. The star initially led them only as far as Judea. And of course, naturally, their search for a newborn king uh, leads them to Israel's royal city and to the king's palace. Where else would you find a royal baby? So once they get to Jerusalem, they go to the palace to ask for directions. And this encounter with Herod is very interesting. First, we should note the way they talk about this royal baby, the king of the Jews. That is a very non-Jewish way to speak of the king. Jews would have spoken of the king of Israel. But this expression, this phrase, king of the Jews, occurs only one other place in the scriptures. Where's that? The crucifixion, yes. When Pilate, you remembered, ordered that the inscription be nailed on top of the cross, Jesus, King of the Jews. And they didn't like that, the Jewish leaders. They wanted him to change it. He said no. I think Matthew, our gospel writer, wants us to make some connections as we read this. Now, of course, the crown that Jesus gets later is not made of gold, it's made of thorns. And Jesus had no throne but a cross. At his death, there was not a bright star, but deep darkness covered the land. But at that moment, at the cross, it's a Gentile voice, the voice of a hardened Roman centurion who says, truly, this man was God's son. Bishop Tom Wright says this, listen to the whole story Matthew is saying. Think about what it meant for Jesus to be the true king of the Jews. And then come to him by whatever route you can and with the best gifts you can. But the wise men needed more than creation, more than a star, and more than wisdom to find Jesus. They needed to understand and follow God's word in the scriptures. In many ways, it's remarkable that it is via Herod of all people that the wise men are pointed in the right direction. 
But I think in, in that we learn something important. God, in his providence, is able to use even wicked people. Actually, you see that many times as you read the scriptures. And this epiphany story reminds us of how God uses all kinds of people and events to bring the gift of salvation near to us. King Herod, Pilate, Judas, and the rest of the unsavory characters are all part of God's plan, albeit unwittingly some of them. And it's still true today that God, in his grace and in his mercy, uses all kinds of ways and people and circumstances in order to reveal himself to us, to make himself known, to lead us, to direct us. And there's no event, no matter how terrible, from which God is unable to bring forth good. But let's get back to Herod for a moment and the wise men. Did you notice where Herod got his information from? He turned to his religious advisors, who in turn turned to the scriptures. They quote the prophet Micah in Bethlehem of Judah, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Which is kind of surprising, because Bethlehem is a kind of tiny little place. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. They didn't find Jesus without the scriptures. Martin Luther once spoke of the Bible as being the cradle of the Lord. Here is where we can come, like the Magi, and find Christ. And the more that we read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the Scriptures, the more clear our vision of Christ becomes. The more we listen to these words, the more we hear God. And if we're to find Christ, there's no better place to go than the place where he promises to be revealed the scriptures. But you know, merely reading it, merely amassing knowledge about the Bible is not enough. Indeed, what a contrast between the wise men from the East and the wise and learned religious leaders whom Herod summoned. The Magi were not mere stargazers who sat around having a nice academic discussion about what it might all mean. They acted on what they were learning. They sought Jesus with all that they had, and it cost them time and effort and money, and they searched diligently. It's amazing, really, what they did. And it's also amazing, in a rather negative way, as to what the locals did, the local religious leaders. The Jewish leaders, they knew these scriptures, they knew these prophecies, they could tell them to Herod. But did they make an effort to go and seek the newborn king? No. The sad truth is they knew so much, and yet they did nothing. And perhaps that can be a challenge to us, who many of us here, we do read our Bibles, we do know the Scriptures actually rather well. And I think the challenge is that we not let our familiarity with this story from God somehow lead us or lull us into complacency or inaction. 
Knowledge is no substitute for faithful obedience. All right, well, we've considered the wise men and the star and the scriptures. The fourth part of this epiphany narrative this morning concerns the gifts. On Christmas Eve here at the 6.30 service, we had a delightful time with the young children in the nativity tableau. I always love that rather chaotic but wonderful service with all the excited children dressed up as donkeys and cows and sheep and camels or whatever it is. One year, we had a stormtrooper. I don't know how he got in, but... But I'll never forget one nativity that we had year, years ago, and I asked the children what was their favorite part of the, um, of the whole scene. And one little girl put her hand up and she said, the wise men. And so I asked her, did she remember what the wise men brought to Jesus? And without hesitating and with a sparkle in her eyes, she said, diamonds. <laughs> so... Here's my confession to you this morning. Um, I had three thoughts that ran simultaneously through my head at that moment when she said diamonds. The first was, you know, like you, how sweet, how, how precious. Um, the girl's face was radiant, and she was fully engaged. It was a lovely, lovely answer. Uh, the second simultaneous thought was, yeah, but she's wrong. It, it, it was gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I mean, what are, they, what are we teaching our children these days? And then the third simultaneous thought was, what a silly idea. What on earth would Jesus have wanted with diamonds? Well, I've been thinking about the wise men, and I, and I keep coming back to that little memory, that little vignette. What was going on in my mind, in my you know, less than charitable thoughts about the diamonds? Honestly, I think it betrayed in me a rather utilitarian approach to worship and that I suspect maybe many of us can sometimes be guilty of. Diamonds for Jesus? How silly. But wait a minute. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Like they're really useful, practical gifts for a young child or young family? No. These gifts were not first and foremost utilitarian gifts. Anybody seen the crown jewels in London? Fantastic. More of you should go. It's really good. Um, and you could say the same thing. What on earth does any monarch in England need with a jewel-studded crown? I mean, how ridiculous is that? And, and from a utilitarian perspective, it is ridiculous. But from the perspective of showing honor, majesty, gravitas, importance, historicity, well, the crown jewels take on a completely different significance. So all that is to say, I'm really grateful for the little girl. I wish I could remember who it was. She's probably 15 now. But anyway, um, who brought, uh, the, you know, who said that the wise man, men brought the baby Jesus diamonds. Maybe they did, but it matters not. The image of the wise men I want you to take hold of this morning is what Matthew tells us they did when they got there, before they went to their treasure tress. They knelt down and they worshipped. It's an extraordinary image. And then, of course, yes, they open their treasure chest and they, they bring out their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And, and there is profound symbolism, of course, in those gifts of gold for a king, incense for a priest, 
and myrrh for embalming the dead. But at a much more visceral level, there before them, and we don't know how old Jesus was, maybe he was a toddler, even more extraordinary, there before them was the Word made flesh. No halos or angels or anything probably to look at that would suggest he's the savior of the world. And yet the wise men stoop down. They, they stop. They kneel. And they worship. And so I want to ask you this. How do you approach Jesus when you come to worship? How do we when we come here together? Great that we have incense today. A little bit of myrrh almost or frankincense, rather. But, but seriously, do you come to, to stop, to kneel down, and to worship? Or, or do we, if we're honest, sometimes come with rather more utilitarian goals, hoping that the music will be to your liking, or that the preaching will be to your taste, that the service will meet your needs? And in our utilitarian world of smartphones, texting, and Twitter, of rushing from one thing to the next, it's possible to approach even our gathering together in church week by week as just one more thing we do amongst all the other busy things that we're engaged in. It's all too easy to lose this sense of wonder, of awe, and majesty that true worship always embodies. And, and let me ask you this also. What gift might you bring to Jesus? I mean, I'm not going to rule out gold, frankincense, and myrrh, or even diamonds, but, but what gifts are we bringing? What if we have actually closed our hearts to him? And if we have, then it's time to open them again. Or if you've stuffed a gift that he's given you, into a drawer because it had no use. Maybe it's time to take it out. Well, I want to draw to a close with, with a final reflection on the wise men. Our gospel reading finished with this. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. When we encounter Jesus, and we have knelt at his feet and worshipped him, we are changed. I wonder, is it possible that Jesus would have you continue on your life's journey this new year by another road? You know, if the wise men had left by the road they'd come in on, it would have taken them straight back to Herod and likely um, certain death. There was no going back the way they had come. Is it possible that today God could be calling you to take a different path forward with him in this new year. Let this new year of God's grace be a new beginning, a fresh start on your journey to becoming closer to Christ. And, you know, reading the scriptures and worshiping Christ are definitely steps that will lead us closer to him. And when you take a step toward him, you will likely discover that he is already so much closer to you than you ever imagined. 
Seeking Christ leads to the joyful discovery that he has been seeking you all along. For most of us, our lives probably have more in common with the wise men than the shepherds, at least in some ways. I'm sure most of us here have experienced times in our lives when we've been faced with great challenges, with great difficulties on our life's journeys, where though we may have been seeking faithfully to follow Jesus and live in his light, the journey is hard, the outcome is uncertain, and where perhaps we can only see the next day or week or, or whatever ahead. And when we face up to life's questions, when we are afraid, unlike the shepherds, things are rarely if ever explained by angels appearing in the night with massed choirs. Instead, more like the wise men, we have to keep on on our journeys. And on those journeys, there will inevitably and always be obstacles, things that will distract us or may tempt us to stop following the light of Christ. We might face unexpected ill health or disappointment or have life turn out in ways that we never dreamt or imagined. And yet, even in the darkest times, the light still shines. Not from a star in the east, but from the cross. For it is only in the light of the cross of Jesus that all of our crosses can have any meaning or purpose. So don't despair when the road is hard or the journey is long. Do not lose heart. Instead, put your hope and your trust in Jesus, our Savior, our brother, our friend, who walks alongside us on life's journey. Amen.